Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, 23andMe is looking for a head of design in Sunnyvale, California. Carbon5 is looking for a mid to senior level product designer in Santa Monica, California. And Athena Health is looking for a senior product designer in Austin, Texas. If you're looking for remote work, Uber is looking for a product designer for the Uber Freight team. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these positions. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and this week I am talking with Mitzi Oku, an interaction and visual designer at HP in San Diego, California. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Mitzi Oku. I am an interaction and visual designer. I am based in San Diego, California, and I currently work at HP. So we're recording this during this pandemic that seems to be the only thing everyone in 2020 is kind of dealing with together. How are you holding up during this time? Yes, that's a loaded question because... I'm feeling a range of emotions, so I'm good in some sense where there's a silver lining in this pandemic where I can like learn a lot of things and, and take classes and really kind of delve into things that I've been wanting to add to my skill set. But then there's the other side that, you know, I live by myself, I'm in isolation, so I have to think about a lot of Things and that can be super overwhelming. So I'm I'm good, but also super overwhelmed by a lot of things. I would say. Yeah, it seems like in California, uh, for at least what I've been able to tell by the news, that it seems like the state is going maybe into some other form of lockdown now. Or like procedures are being rolled back. Is that is that the case where you're at? Yes. Yeah, so we were at phase two for a little bit. So a few things opened, like restaurants opened and then it rolled back to phase one. So we're all just in lockdown. Nothing's really open except for just parks, neighborhood parks, beaches. And that's basically it. it's super strict. You can't really get any service anywhere without wearing a mask. So it's, it's super, super strict. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to really be the case. I was going to say nationwide, it still feels like there's so much, there's so many arguments around whether or not people need to wear a mask and if there's going to be mandates. I mean, even mm-hmm. here in Georgia, like I'm in Atlanta and the mayor's like, you have to wear a mask. And the governor's mm-hmm. like, no, you don't. And I'm going to sue you, <laughs> mayor, for saying that people have to wear a mask. So like, there's just, 
in different places, there's, I don't know, just weird precautions around all of this. But it seems like until we all get on one, just like one accord on all of this, this is just going to have to be something that we deal with, especially going into the fall. Oh, yeah, I agree. And it's weird because at the beginning of this, people were putting a timeline. They were saying, oh, we're going to be back in three months. Oh, we're going to be back in four months, two weeks. And it just feels like there's no end in sight, especially with how things are being handled in the country. So it's really weird because when you are thinking about changing careers and, and changing, you know, location, you have to keep all of this in mind that, okay, well, with this pandemic, how long am I going to be in isolation for? And will that allow me to go anywhere? And then if things open up back soon or sooner than we thought, how does that affect everything? So there's so many things to think about. Yeah, and it varies in so many different places in the country, too. So it's mm-hmm. just, even if you're like, say you're in New York and you travel down to Florida, I think I was reading something on if you're coming back from, I think it's a number of states, Florida's one of them, that you mm-hmm. have to do two weeks of self-quarantine once you come back to New York. But then I'm not sure how people are enforcing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like here in Atlanta, things have been pretty much open since April 30th. There's been some levels of rollback with like, you know, I think we're back at phase one, I believe, with our our city as well. But people are still going out and going to restaurants and going to clubs and going to the bars and places are still open. So it's just a really like tricky time. I, I know that there's that concept, uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. I don't fear that I'm missing out, but it's just like this <laughs> range of emotions, like you said, when you see people just out and about living life like oh mm-hmm. this virus didn't kill this hasn't killed 150,000 people i'm not right. afraid of it you know so it's right. it's kind of weird how's it been working through this pandemic you're an interaction designer at hp like how has that been oh man so i really try to keep myself motivated because i was kind of reading this article that was saying that it's actually really hard to work from home because the physical space of the office is meant to be that way because it helps you shift your mindset. And also the commute there helps you shift your mindset from the home life to the work life. And now that's taken away, it's very hard to switch in between mindsets. So when you wake up, it's very hard to go to the work mindset. But then when you get into work mode and work is done, it's very hard to switch that off because everything is so blended. So I really try to continue be to be motivated to do the work and I do my best in everything. But I think personally, it's very hard to shift to that mindset to try and do your best at work, in my opinion. Yeah. I've worked from home now for, this is 2020. I've worked from home now for 12 years. Oh. And it, it is hard. I mean, even, even after 12 years, it's not simple. It's definitely like building a muscle or training a muscle to be able mm-hmm. to kind of switch between those modes. And it is tough, especially at a time when you can't leave the house. Like it was mm-hmm. a lot easier for me to work from home when I could leave the house. I could go to a Starbucks or I'm working at a client location or something like that. But now it's like your home is now also your office and your gym and the club and the hangout spot and all these other things in one place. And so, yeah, shifting from that is, it is tough. It is tough. I mean, I think after 12 years, I think I've done 
pretty well at being able to make that shift. But mm-hmm. even with that, like it comes with consequences because especially now with you not being able to kind of leave the house, mm-hmm. you can still shift in mindset, but like the work is sort of still lingering in a way. Yes. Yeah. Like I found for me, it's been helpful to make zones. Like I have mm-hmm. like my work office zone in my apartment and then I have my relaxing zone in my apartment and I try not to do mm-hmm. work in the relaxing zone, and I try not to relax in the work zone. Yeah. Um, that doesn't always happen, but it's helped a little bit. But yeah, working from home is tough, especially with the constant news feed now about what's happening, you know, with mm-hmm. the pandemic, with other things that are going on in the world, civil unrest, etc. It can be a lot yeah. to deal with. Yeah, and I find what helps, oddly enough, is to actually change your outfits, too. So yeah. it used to yeah. be that I was always in like sweatpants so I was always in that mentality of oh I just want to be sleeping but I noticed later on it took me months I'm still learning too obviously because it's again it's a muscle that you have to train like you said I've noticed that when I wear work clothes it helps me get into that mindset Mm -hmm. and then to switch off to that I'll wear gym clothes so I can work out and that tires me out and then I will switch back to I'll take a shower and then in my pajamas and that just really helps with the transition and I think the thing that is also hard about working from home is communicating with other people at work so many things slip through the crack because when you're in the office you can just go up to someone's desk and ask them a question but when you're at home you have to wait for responses or people take advantage of the fact that we have these boundaries that don't exist so Mm -hmm. then they take advantage of that by scheduling meetings during lunchtime or scheduling meetings past five or six. And that can get really frustrating because it's like, I I want to shift mentalities to kind of properly put boundaries in between my work life and my home life. Yeah. Has HP been good about sort of allowing you all the grace to, to kind of set your schedules during this time? They have been pretty good about it, but I think internally, because I work with a studio you have to really be strong about the boundaries that you set because so many people, especially with a new upcoming release, will just run over that and schedule meetings during lunch or schedule meetings at eight or seven in the morning or after work. So I think the company upholds it. I would probably say the people in the studio don't really uphold that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell me about the work you're doing at HP. Yes. So I sit on the out-of-box experience team. So that has to do with when, so first of all, I work with printers, but when you're on the out-of-box experience team, that has to do with creating the experience of a user or a customer or a person grabbing a printer and that experience from opening up the package all the way to when the printer's done being set up. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I make logic flows and document behaviors as an interaction designer and then pass that on to developers and review that. And then when that's done, because luckily I'm a hybrid and I think I'm the only interaction slash visual designer on the team, that request can come to me and I will you know, nicely skin it and make sure that all the branding is up to code and then deliver it to the developers and then they implement it. And that's kind of an overview of what I do. I never thought about the, the experience of setting up a printer. Um, mm-hmm. 
when, when I think about it, I mean, I've had my, my current printer, which is a, a Samsung. I don't even think Samsung makes printers anymore, which lets you know how old it is. But <laughs> I just remember getting it and the setup was pretty easy. You take it out of the box, mm-hmm. you hook it up, the computer recognizes the driver, and then you're just kind of like good to go. I would imagine that's kind of the, the best case scenario when you're working with oh, a printer. Yeah. But with HP, is there, are there like other parts to this sort of, it almost sounds like an onboarding process to, to kind of get people up to speed with printing. Yes, there's so many things that go into it. So first starting with localization, right? Because it's not about, it's not just about America. There are other people in the world that use this product. So we have to localize all of our copy properly and think about right to left text so that people can have a great experience and that they can see themselves in it. Then it's about all of these different little things like errors. How do we present errors when someone does something wrong or when something goes wrong on the printer? How do we make that experience nice so it's not making the user feel bad? And then what is the recovery path to put them back on the happy path? So a lot of things like that go into creating the perfect experience. It's almost kind of like looking at different paths and then trying to streamline it to one path or five years off of the happy path how we can go to a great recovery path and connect them to customer service to help them out. But we're also not trying to lead them to customer service because those calls are really expensive. So it's oh, really? like that. Mm-hmm. So the more calls we get, the more money HP spends. So one of our objectives is to always reduce customer service calls. Interesting. How is it more expensive? I don't know the mechanics behind it, but all I just remember is my manager saying that we cannot let them go to customer service. So we have to create the best experience because apparently it's just really expensive. Huh? I never considered the cost. I mean, oftentimes, like if I'm having an issue with tech, customer service is kind of the first person I want to speak with Mm because like I'm a customer and I need help servicing this so I can fix it. And there have been, you know, services, now that I think about it, you know, mostly software as a service kind of things like Amazon or something like that, where they try to steer you away from actually talking to anyone as much as they possibly can. Like Mm -hmm. they'll guide you through a wizard. They'll point you to a knowledge base article, but it's like, no, I want to talk to somebody, but I never thought about if that's expensive for the company. I would imagine just what, like the cost of the call or something. I don't know. That's really, I've never heard of that about it being Mm -hmm. expensive to do customer service in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's why we have to think about a lot of troubleshooting paths uh, to have the customer recover properly. So they don't have to go to customer service. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So is this your your first full-time job here at HP? This is my first full-time job right out of college. Oh, wow. How has it been? How's the experience? It's been a whirlwind. I would also (laughs) say it's been the biggest learning experience, I think, not really in terms of design, but I think having to deal with office politics and personalities, Mm. as well as leadership and what is good leadership and what isn't good leadership. Yeah. I think those are the biggest lessons that I'm learning. And at first I was like, I want to be learning design more, but I think that learning the social aspect of being in a corporate environment is actually super, super important. And I think it could actually trickle down into your personal life on how you deal and react to people. 
So I feel like I've changed in the two years that I've been at HP because now I really kind of sit with myself mm-hmm. and think about what I want to say or how I want to handle situations and, you know, make people feel good and not bad. Right. So it has to do with like learning about difficult conversations, but also learning how to step up for myself as well and not let people run over me yeah. professionally in that sense. Yeah. And in your first job like that, especially right out of school, like you're kind of your prime fodder for that to happen. Like some mm-hmm. higher up will take out some decision that had nothing to do with you out on you. And you're like, I'm just, I'm just here. It's not yeah. something that I did or anything like that. <laughs> How many people are on your team? So we have about 13 people on our team. It's a really huge team. And some, sometimes someone will pop up and be like, Oh, we're, we're the out of box experience marketing. And we'll, we'll just be like, where, where did you come from? Like this team is so much bigger and, and it kind of trickles down to so many different networks because the out of box experience is, it's a huge complex network and it's probably the most complex team. So I'd probably say about 13 people, but I'm pretty sure there's more lingering out there. Okay. So you're in San Diego right now. You, you mentioned that before we started recording, is that where you grew up? No. So I grew up in Atlanta. Oh, raised, okay. Born and raised. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess growing up here in Atlanta was, was art and design kind of a big part of your growing up here? No, it wasn't. I was actually a classical cellist. So I played cello for, I played, I started playing cello since I was four and did it all the way through high school and went to a music school for two years. So I actually didn't pick up design or even, well, no, I was introduced to design in Georgia, but music was just a part of my upbringing mm-hmm. and all the way up until I left home. Interesting. Classical cellist. Mm-hmm. Is there a big cello market in Atlanta? I know there's a symphony <laughs> here, but. When I was growing up, there used to be a big cello market. I don't know if it's still that way because I'm not tapped into the network anymore. Uh-huh. But I think looking at different places, Atlanta was such a great place to grow up as a classical musician, especially a young black classical musician. That's really important. And Mm. I remember being in this youth talent development program that really worked at bringing you up to be a professional. So that way, I think their mission statement was to basically raise the percentage of black people in orchestras across the nation. And so they would train you, they would make you go to all these like music camps So it was so great because there was a community of black classical musicians in Atlanta that I'm pretty sure other people or other young black musicians probably didn't have, which is really unfortunate. So it was great. I know that there's, there's actually a music artist here. He's a cellist. Okay. Cello. Have you heard of him? I don't don't think so. What's his, what's his first and last name? Oh, Corey Johnson, but he goes by okay. Cello. He's based out of Atlanta. Uh, he graduated from Morehouse, I think a little mm. bit before I did, probably. But I know about OK Cello. Honestly, I'm not going to make it seem like I like I'm like I'm like an original OG, OK Cello fan. <laughs> I just found out about him <laughs> this year because I was supposed to interview him for uh, a speaker series thing prior 
to the pandemic, but you mentioned cello and his name like immediately came to mind. Like, Oh yeah, I could, I could see that. And I could also see how Atlanta would be a good city for a black professional musician because there's so many environments that you can be in. Oh yeah. Like professional environments, probably like political fundraisers. I'm just imagining all the like, events and stuff that happen like in Buckhead and Ansley Park and stuff that mm-hmm. they always want to have like a string quartet at the event yeah. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, Atlanta's very lush with great art opportunity, whether it's fine arts and performing arts. So yeah. I personally miss Atlanta because of that. But yeah, it was great. And I guarantee you, I don't know OK Cello, but I'm pretty sure I know somebody that knows him. Because the thing is, the the music, the classical music community is very small, so uh-huh. it can easily be like one of those Kevin Bacon degrees where it's just like, I know somebody that knows somebody that knows him, or I know someone that knows him. Yeah. So, I would yeah. imagine so. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of mentioned before that you didn't pick up design kind of growing up. When did you first know that design was something you wanted to do for a living? It was actually my second year of college. I was living in Boston and I was at a music school called the Boston Conservatory. And I remember just feeling like the path that I was going down as a classical musician was just not financially stable. And I was worried I wasn't going to really book that many gigs because it's so competitive and it's not about how talented you are. It's about who you know. And it's like that everywhere, but it was really, really bad in the classical music community especially as a black musician, it's, it's horrible. And so there was a certain lifestyle that I wanted to live and I wanted to travel around and eat really good food, which if you were successful as a classical musician, you could, Mm -hmm. but I felt like there were a lot of things going against me. So I kind of thought to myself, well, what, I don't want to do this anymore, mostly because I don't think that this is not going to be financially sustainable, but I want to solve issues for people who have this love like I do and who are passionate about it. And I remember telling my parents that I didn't want to do it anymore, that I didn't want to play cello. And they were just like, yes, we completely understand. We were feeling this this entire time. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to do something with art and technology. I don't know the name of it. I don't know what it is. And they said, okay, we'll book some school tours around the country and we'll go. And so I went to some school uh, tours, one being mass art, I think another one being in Chicago. And my dad said, okay, well, I got your personal private tour at SCAD. Let's go together and go down there. So I went to Savannah and some of the counselors were asking me, what do you want to do? And again, I explained, I want to do something with art and technology. I just really don't know the name. And they said, okay, it seems like you want to do graphic design. So start off with that and see how you feel about it. And I said, okay, that sounds good. Then I transferred to SCAD and started doing graphic design. Loved it. Loved the foundation year. And then I took my first human computer interaction class because I was thinking to myself while I was in my classes that I love this, but this is still not putting me on the route where I want to solve issues for the industry that I left. And Mm. so one of my counselors was just like, I think you would probably be into UX. So you should take this human computer interactions class first and see how you feel about it. 
And so I said, okay. And I went and I took the first HCI class with Yunki Chung. And that was, that class made it extremely clear that that is exactly what I want to do. So I took a few classes in interaction design. I basically did the entire minor, but uh, it didn't add up financially. And I would have had to do some extra classes that had nothing to do with the minor. So I didn't declare it. But I took all the interaction minor classes, and then that's how I got into it. And that led me to a fellowship at IDEO and a few hackathons. And that's how I got on that path. Wow. So you really did make a a big pivot to go from music to design. And it all mm-hmm. kind of started with that tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your time like there in general? I mean, coming from a music background, and now you're in this art and design school. Was it very similar to any previous experiences you've had? It was actually kind of a culture shock at first, which kind of sounds strange, but it was a culture shock because in the classical music world, it's so competitive and it's such a solitary discipline. And even when you're playing in an orchestra, it's about being self-aware about what you're doing in order to blend with the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so that, that industry was kind of traumatizing because it was just so negative. And so when I got to SCAD, I was kind of expecting the same thing because it was along the fine arts track. And when people would come up to me and say, Hey, do you want to collaborate? I would kind of look around and be like, you want to actually work with me to get this project done and they were like yeah why not and it was so crazy because there wasn't really any competitiveness it was pretty open in the sense that somebody was always wanting to collaborate with you on something and so there was like this great community and even during finals it there was a sense of camaraderie because during finals week it was so stressful and you would see so many students in the building trying to pump out their finals and because everyone kind of empathized with each other, if you needed something, people would be like, oh, here's some scissors, here's whatever. And you could go to random people and ask for anything and they would hand it off to you. So that was a great experience coming from something super competitive, I would say. Hmm. So it sounds like SCAD really kind of helped prepare you once you got out there in the working world as a designer. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I definitely could say that it gave me a solid foundation, but definitely gave me a healthy competitive drive to want to create amazing experiences and try and be the best. So, so I really appreciate Scott for that. Okay. Speaking of amazing experiences, let's talk about this conference that you put on back in June, a few months ago, where are the black Mm -hmm. designers? I want you to take the audience, but also take me back Mm -hmm. to the beginning. Like where did the spark first begin for you to even like do this? Ooh, I feel like it's not just one spark. It's like multiple sparks, but the first spark actually started at SCAD and it was great experience, but there was something that was bothering me about the environment because SCAD is this predominantly white institution sitting in Savannah, Georgia, which is probably one of the blackest cities. And it was in a predominantly black neighborhood. And there was 
no streamline of black designers or black creatives coming in. And I would be sitting in class and be one of the only black people. And it just did not feel right. So me and my friend or my friend and I, Garrett, I came to him and I said, Garrett, I really want to do something about this. I really want to raise awareness about this. I want all the students to come together as a community to try and do something about this. So we tried to do something similar, but in a physical sense where we wanted to occupy galleries and get community involvement in and outside of school. But that didn't work because we had to get the venue and we had to get approval from the school. And if the school didn't approve, we had to separate ourselves from it and basically get things out of pocket. And it was so much that it didn't pick off the ground. So we let it go. And that was maybe three or four years ago. And so then after that, I remember I was sitting in my room and I saw your talk where the black designers and I was in awe because I was just like, this is the most fantastic blueprint. And I was looking at the stream or the numbers of views on the video. And I said to myself, why is nobody talking about this? Because these (laughs) are such amazing solutions. And I was really questioning that. And the thing is, like, it came up every Black History Month, especially on LinkedIn. It would frustrate me so much that I would see companies say, oh, we support the Black community. We support Black History Month. Here are our token Black employees, and they can tell you why they love working here. And it made me so mad because I'm just like, it's very clear that your company does not have that many Black people. I don't know where your data is, so I really cannot you know, say this out loud because I have nothing to back it up. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was so frustrating for me. So when I saw your video, I was like, this, this is it. And this is exactly what everyone needs to see. Again, every Black History Month would come and the same thing would happen. I got super frustrated. So then when the pandemic came, And then after another flare up of Black Lives Matter, I don't know if it was the pent up energy or I would say it was a combination of the pent up energy and the triggering of me observing Black History Month all over again. But it's 10 times worse because all of these companies are posting these black squares. And I said, enough is enough. And I literally remember the day before I watched your presentation because I always do this when I get really, really angry in the design world. I watched your presentation and I called up Garrett and I was like, we have to do something. And I just really, really want to amplify the work that, you know, you did and exactly what you were saying and basically use this as an amplification of black voices. And that's basically how how that came about. And it was great because we didn't think it was going to blow up and it did. And I think the poster challenge and the kind of creative protests we had in that digital space really put that out there. And then a lot of people came and, and wanted to help. And it was so much and it happened so fast. But it was also so big, too, and super beautiful. Yeah. So that's how that came about. It's interesting that you mentioned, like, this time has been like another Black History Month. Because that's, I've been trying to put my finger on sort of what that feeling has been through most mm-hmm. of June. Like, of course, there's a horrific thing that happened with George Floyd getting killed by the police. There's now this increased, I would almost say like this mega increased awareness of Mm -hmm. what's happening with black people at the hands of police and just like in the general American system, you know, in all facets of it. It has sort of felt like 
another Black History Month, just in the terms, just in terms of the, I'm loath to call it support. Mm-hmm. I'll just say the attention, because mm-hmm. as many folks I know who have, you know, who have been doing this for a while, like that kind of support is fleeting. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a good spike for about a month and then it just sort of mm-hmm. dies out. And so you're good. It's good to have that attention when you have it, but like it's never a sustained sort of thing. And I remember getting during that month, I was getting all kinds of like press calls and stuff. And folks were like, so do you think this will last? Do you think this will last? I'm like, no, (laughs) I don't. I mean, it would be great if it does last. But, you know, I also know that I get the same spike every February for Black History Month. So that's why I felt like it did feel like another kind of event like that. The interesting thing about that presentation, I'll, I'll, give some history behind it, which I don't know if I've even really shared this on the show. So I had the idea to do that presentation back in 2014. And this was around the time that I first joined AIGA's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. Shout out to Antoinette Carroll for being the one that really kind of like gave me the inspiration to do that because she had joined as a co-chair. And, you know, actually, that's when I joined AIGA was in 2014. Mm-hmm. And so really kind of getting on the task force and starting to do research on just black designers in general, because AIGA had this sort of like series of interviews that they did called Design Journeys. And they never really kept it up from year to year. It was a good effort, but they never really tried to it didn't feel like they tried to update it a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And then even just being able to talk to folks that work in the archives and like look at the 1990 journal entry that came from Cheryl D. Miller's 1987 print article and looking at the results from the 91 job symposium and everything and seeing how, you know, 20 plus years later, none of this has changed. That sort of inspired me at first to kind of put the presentation together and, of course, do the research and everything. Mm -hmm. Submitted it to South by Southwest because they have – South by Southwest has this process where you have to, like – you submit your your panel information. And I was doing a solo panel. This was my second time going to South by, so I felt kind of confident that I would be able to to get in. But the way that they do it is you submit your, like, panel and everything in, like – I don't know. I think it's, like, July or August or something like that. And then around September-ish or so, September, October, something like that, they let people know like, hey, your panel idea was accepted. So every panel idea that gets submitted doesn't get accepted. Mm -hmm. So it gets accepted into this thing called the Panel Picker, which is a public forum for people to vote on your panel. Mm -hmm. And there are all these criteria that your panel have to like, it has to hit in order for it to kind of be successful. One of them is this acronym called VOWEL, which stands for Voice opinion, women, ethnicity, location, or something like that. In terms of like, no, the V was for vocation. That's what it was. In terms of like the diversity of what you have for your panel. So you don't just have like four white guys or or whatever. Like you want to diversify it. But then there were all these other sorts of things that you had to hit in terms of the time limit and things like that. So I got accepted into the panel picker. I had people vote on it. And I had no idea whether or not I was going to get in because the panel picker voting period is pretty short. It's like... I think it's like two or three weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And then what South by Southwest does is that they announce it in waves, like who got accepted to be part of the programming. So they do the first wave in like October, November. They do the second wave in like December. And then they did a wave, I think it was in January of 2015. And now the event takes place in March in Austin. Mm -hmm. And it's a sold out event. Like you have to get your hotels and tickets months in advance. So I didn't find that I was going to South by in March until January. 
And by that time, I'm like, I have no idea if I even know where I'm going to stay. Like all the hotels are booked. If you get an Airbnb, it's like $500 a night. Like it's, it's super expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> oh my God. Um, not to mention getting a direct flight from Atlanta to Austin. You know, there mm-hmm. were some direct flights, but they're more expensive because Austin's not necessarily a hub like, you know, Houston would be or Dallas or something like that. So I put up a GoFundMe. AIGA said that if you raise a thousand, we'll match it. So I raised a thousand off, off GoFundMe. So they matched it, managed to find an Airbnb. And went and gave the presentation. Now, when I gave the presentation, the way that South by does this, and I don't know if they still do it this way, mm-hmm. but they put the majority of the quote unquote diverse content in one room in like the top back of the convention center. So you have to go all the way to the top floor, all the way to the back in this room. Nine ABC is where they usually have it. When I first spoke at South by Southwest in 2010, I was in that same room. And now I'm doing the second presentation in 2015 in the same room. And I'm noticing even as I look at the programming, I'm like, why they put all the diversity stuff all the way in the back of the convention center? I think they do it on purpose. If somebody from South by is listening, I would love to get an update on that. But I feel like you do it on purpose. Wow. <laughs> so I they had- it was just like, my face was like, question mark? That's- <laughs> So weird. So aside from it being like all the way in the back, you know, South by Southwest really only markets their big tent pole type events. So like they'll market the film festival or if a celebrity is speaking like Jimmy Kimmel, for example, I think spoke the year that I was there and he actually was speaking in the room next to mine. So when I spoke, my room was like this weird overflow room where people kind of just ducked in to charge their phone or like take a nap because like my presentation was at five o'clock on a friday like people were not really trying to stick around they were trying to go get some beer get some barbecue find out where the party is so i didn't really have a great time slot it was not in a great place and there were maybe about 15 or 20 people in that room people were asleep i could hear the noise from jimmy kimmel in the other room and people being like yeah jimmy this is so great and i'm like giving my little presentation in a nearly empty room, you know, screaming about diversity in design. (laughs) And, and, you know, folks are like, some are asleep. I think I woke somebody up and they (laughs) nodded back off. And But the people that were in there Mm -hmm. were people from Facebook, from Pinterest. There was someone there from Dell. There were a couple other folks. So there were folks in the room that did hear it and were like, okay, we need to talk to this guy and like find out what what he's about and everything. And so from there, I got invited to the Facebook house because different companies come and they basically will rent out like a restaurant or a big house or something for the whole South by Southwest time. And they'll do programming based out of there and everything. It's sort of like a home base for the company while they're there. So I got to go to the Facebook house and talk to people there. And that's how I ended up. That's basically how I ended up speaking there. I think about a year or so later was really kind of like hobnobbing and getting to know them, but also them seeing the work that I was doing. So it it kind of worked out that way. But yeah, I remember giving that presentation and it was not popular at (laughs) all. Aside from the fact that it wasn't popular at South by Southwest, I had also, I pre-recorded it, had to go up on YouTube and then... I think AIGA put up a post about it after South by Southwest and the the comments and the feedback that I were getting from people were so 
bad. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. A lot of, first of all, a lot of people thought it was racist. Stop. Like th- a lot of people thought the, the initial imagery with the black background and the white, like cartoon eyes, a lot of people are like, this is so racist. This is like Sambo, Jim Crow. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. This is more like Looney Tunes, right. Disney, like every cartoon in the past 50 years when it's dark, all you see. I mean, come on, you know, mm-hmm. but I was getting chewed out by people about that presentation. And, you know, folks say, well, how can you ask that question? And, you know, where are the black designers? We've always been here. It's a rhetorical question, okay? Right. I know that we've always been here. Did you even look at the presentation? Clearly, we are right. here. But I got a lot of flack, a lot of flack for that presentation. So when I did it and I put it up, I kept kind of directing people to it. I think I even gave that talk a few more times. I gave it at, mm-hmm. I know, a f- at a few ad agencies. I gave it at How Design Live the next year here in Atlanta in 2016. And then I kind of just let it stay up there. I was like, oh, you know, if people want to check it out, they can check it out. But I remember getting so much hassle from it that I was like, look, it can just stay up here. I hadn't thought about updating it or anything like that. I just left it up there because at the time it didn't seem like people were very receptive to it. (laughs) And then based on the feedback that I got from it, I was like, well, shit, I just I'll just leave it up there. You know, now, granted, this year in particular, it's gained a lot more steam <laughs> in, in part in part because of your event but also because yeah. of now this increased awareness of like black voices and black yeah. designers and we need to start listening to black voices and then someone's like i found this presentation on youtube yeah, like right. you know and they're being <laughs> and it's being passed around and and i saw it passed around on linkedin and someone asked me for my my venmo link is like we just want to make sure that that you're getting paid for this this tremendous work i'm like i haven't touched that thing in five years but sure here's my venmo tag people are paying me for the presentation now after they've seen it i'm like oh okay so maybe i should update it because i honestly hadn't you know like really thought about it is since i gave the presentation but then that's how i found out about your events because someone was like, oh, and it's so great that you're now doing this this event around it. And I'm like, wait, what? I'm not doing an event. Or what are you talking about? And then, like, someone shows me the website. And I'm like, it's the same black oh, on yeah. white. And I'm like, oh. I was like, who is doing this? I had, no, <laughs> I had no clue what it was about. Like, I was just alerted to it when you were doing it, like, in early June of this year. And I'm like what is this? And I had to clear it up online because people really thought it was me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's not me. I don't even know who's behind it. Cause I, like mm-hmm. there was no about page or anything. So I was like, I don't know who's behind this. So let me just say, I'm not behind it. So mm-hmm. let's clear that up. So people don't think that I'm like all of a sudden putting this event out there, you know? Right. Yeah. So- and I think in the moment, because there was such urgency, cause it goes back to your point that, it's so easy for this to be a trend and it's crazy how no one talks about this whole pattern of the flare up of BML around the summertime. Mm -hmm. And so there was a sense of urgency because I was like, okay, there's this flare up, but I guarantee you in a few months it's going to die down and no one's going to talk about it again. And again, maybe it was just the pent up energy from this quarantine. I was like, no more. This is, I'm not going to do a whole repeat of this Black History Month. And to be honest, I was just so shocked that there was this amazing, your presentation is such an amazing resource and it leads to all these other amazing resources. And it just really baffled me that 
no one was looking at this and that design agencies and design studios were posting these black squares, but they weren't looking at this amazing blueprint of so many solutions that was literally just a click away on YouTube. If you just ask the question to Google, cause that's like, that's how I came about your presentation. I was so angry one day that I literally, you know, how you just type in random questions to yeah. Google sometimes just the wildest random questions. And I <laughs> randomly just asked Google, I said, where are the black designers? And your presentation came up and I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. So I've been tracking the activity for, I think since, since 2016 up until now. And it was just so disappointing that it just wasn't getting that much traffic. And I was just thinking to myself, this is the question to ask because it's, it's really important. And I don't think that it could be put any other way. And it's a rhetorical question, but it's just something that I ask myself sometimes when I go into a room, not to, black designers themselves, but to companies, right? On where are people that look like me? Like, this is not cool at all. And it's crazy because after the event happened, we got so many DMs and emails that were saying, oh man, I actually did my senior thesis and named it where the black designers a really long time ago. Or, oh, I did a magazine a few years ago for for my school called Where the Black Designers. And there's so many people that actually did a project around this question. And it was great because I, I was just like, so many people have been asking this question, but it's like the creative space and the and the tech industry don't wanna either they know about it or they and they just want to ignore it or they just really just don't know about it like at all. So Yeah, I feel like it's a little bit of both. Because I'll, like I, you know, sort of mentioned before about Black History Month, I'll usually get pings about, not necessarily about the presentation, but certainly just about Revision Path, mm-hmm. like during February. Someone will say, oh, yeah, well, we can, we can feature Revision Path for Black History Month. I'm like, it's Black History Month every month on Revision Path. But sure, Amen. why not? You know, and I mean, it also, it also happens to be our anniversary month, but just that feeling of knowing that you seem to only be valuable to us as a community once a year. It's sort of, especially after I did the presentation, I just focused on just revision path. I didn't really think about the presentation. Like I put it up mm-hmm. online. I bought a domain. So if people typed in, it's funny. I used to own the Where Other Black Designers domain mm-hmm. and I had it redirected at YouTube presentation and I forgot why I let it lapse. I think because nobody was watching it. I was like, oh, I'll just let it go. It's fine. So it's not surprising that it's starting to kind of get, you know, more traction. And I even put on the presentation now, I've said I plan on updating it for 2020, which mm-hmm. has caused a whole new set of, I wouldn't say issues to come up. But now people are like, did you update the presentation yet? Did you? Huh? Did you? We want to put it in our book. We want to do it. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, I'm updating it on my timeline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm going to be doing it with a colleague of mine because she has some, some great data to add to this, Jacinda Walker. And I'm like, we're going to do it. But like, I'm not in any rush to get this out because I know mm-hmm. when I first did this, there was no rush to get it out. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a rush for to get it by South by, but like nobody was clamoring for it, asking for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, Oh, well, if you do it, can you present it here? And can we host it here? And can we do this? I'm like, everyone can wait because mm-hmm. you've been waiting all this time. <laughs> I'll yeah. get to it when I get to it, you know? And that's not to be 
not to be a dick or anything, but honestly, it's like, it's not top of mind for me. Mm-hmm. I will get around to it, but I just haven't done it yet. And I think the the thing that has made the presentation probably still so, so prescient these, these years later is that the stats haven't really changed. Yes. Yes. I think that was the thing for me because I would watch it every year since 2016 and just think that nothing has changed. And then I think when everything happened and again, those black squares came up, I was just like, nothing has changed and nothing is going to change. And so that's just performative activism. And I personally think that it was just so rude. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Let's, let's go back to the event. Cause you know, you pulled everything together in a, <clears throat> excuse me, you pulled everything together in a very, short amount of time. I mean, from, I think you said you kind of first conceived the idea of doing this online, like early June. And then by the end of the month, like the event was happening Mm -hmm. and you and I had talked about, I mean, you and I had a conversation, actually you, me, Garrett, we talked about this. And one of the first things that I had said to you was if you really want to do this, like, and do Mm -hmm. it effectively, you should wait. And I was saying that not out of like, you know, jealousy or spite or anything, but also just because like this information has been here this whole time. If there's this much demand for it, people will wait for it. And I'm not saying that you have to like string them along, but like give yourself enough time to like get it right, I guess, or like to do the due diligence. Cause I didn't really know what, of what shape the event was taking what I could tell just kind of based off of our initial conversation. But I'm like, so this is a very short amount of time to put something together, like maybe wait a little bit. And I feel like at this point, especially with the pandemic, like people can wait, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? They ain't going to know where to go. How did you pull everything together in such a short amount of time? That's a great question because originally and I say this again, because I really mean it. We did not think it was going to get that large. We were going to be happy with 300 people or just even 100 people because we just thought that that's what the scale was going to be. And I think that the poster challenge that happened really put that out there, especially because it was community engagement. And I think the fact that designers could use their skills to say something Mm-hmm. So I think it spread. And then when it got really big and we started looking at how much this was going to cost to host all of those people, we were like, okay, like this is actually a much bigger deal than we thought. We didn't know what we were going to do. We just originally thought we were going to just have some type of small community discussion about this rhetorical question. Right. And not really have like an entire five to six hour conference. And so when it got that big, we were kind of panicking a little bit because we just didn't have the resources. We didn't have the experience. We didn't know anybody that had the experience. But I think the beautiful thing about it was because it intrigued so many people, so many people just jumped in to help. One of the first people being Gary Hustwit. And he was just like, let me just use my connections and just take care of the production side for you. So you guys can really think about what you want to say. And then it was kind of like, you know, that game uh, monkey in the barrel where it's like, it's that little one, it's those red monkeys and they hook up 
to each other mm-hmm. and you pull one out it pulls another one out and it pulls another one out until you have like this string of these things but but they're all connected in a way that's what that was when we kind of were just like hey we need a little bit of help one person hopped on and said okay i would love to do this but you should you should talk to this person to speak and then we would talk to that person and then they would put that per- they would pull that person along and we would pull in people that we knew that could offer all of these interesting voices so it was very communal in in its in the sense that everybody kind of like held hands and kind of came together to make this happen this was seriously like a community effort it wasn't just me and Garrett just doing everything by ourselves it was like so many people offered so many resources and so many interesting stories that that's how that really came about in an interesting way. And even then meeting other people and you, especially as a young black designer who just had really no direction and, and saying, Oh, there's, there's a black design community here that you should refer to. But then also with the perspective of like, not knowing that there was really a community. Cause I didn't really properly do research or even like dig hard enough, especially cause I just didn't know where to even start. I was also kind of bringing in other black designers that I felt like also should have a voice and that may have been new or should be also introduced to the black design community as well. So we can all come together and discover each other, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's how that was pulled together. And I really make sure to say that it was really a community effort. And I feel like Garrett and I kind of lit the spark and it just became this huge fire because everyone contributed to it becoming that huge. Yeah. I I think you had told me that there were like thousands of people that had RSVP'd for this event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was super overwhelming in a good way, but also a very stressful way too, because as more people were RSVPing, it was like the microphone was getting bigger and the audience was getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And so we met with Cheryl because she came It It was great because Garrett and I had no idea what we were doing and we could have just completely gone on the path where it could have been a train wreck. And luckily Cheryl stepped in and she privately corrected us, but then was also, really kind of gave us direction in the sense that she was like, you have this really big microphone. The best thing you can do is say a few things and say it super well so that people get it. And in talking to her about that, it really helped us kind of steer the direction and pull a lot of things back because I can honestly say that we were doing way too much at the beginning or earlier on. So that was great that she stepped in, especially as a black design elder to really give us direction. Also being honest, we didn't even know what we were trying to do as well because it got so big. Mm -hmm. And so we were just really mysterious all the way up until the day of the event. And even after, yeah. And even then after part of the criticism that came about was due to confusion because I think it kind of goes back to the criticism that you were getting that a lot of black designers were like, we're here. Are you talking to us or are you talking to somebody else? Like, who are you talking to? 
And I think after I had to reflect and really think about the fact that we weren't even very clear on who we were talking to. And so we really sat down and looked and we really kind of figured out that we were talking to allies because even in the conference, we were, we were saying that black people don't have to do anything. They've been doing amazing. They've been doing great. They need to just continue what they're doing, but it's all of these other allies that want to help out that need to also put in the work within themselves and Mm -hmm. also use some of their privilege and power and shift that so that we can again, divest from this white supremacist system and racism that has trickled down to even modern day technology, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So it was very overwhelming in both a good and a, I would say stressful way, but I always look at things as a learning experience in the sense that I didn't take things personally when I got the criticism, because even if somebody was saying the criticism in a way that made people or even me feel uncomfortable, I didn't really pay attention to the uncomfortableness because there was some truth in what they were saying. And it made me question why that came about. So it was just kind of like a process of just like filtering all of that. But And I also kind of thought to myself, well, if they're saying this out loud, it means that they partially care and that they want to see this succeed. Otherwise, why would they get their time and energy into saying this out loud? Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that uh, that criticism. Some of it I saw on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Some of it I saw on Instagram. Heavy criticism, most notably from other Black designers. Like, how did that make you feel? Yeah, it, I took it really hard. I would probably say the first two weeks after the conference, like the success that I felt the day of was very, very short lived. I only felt that for a few hours. And then the criticism started rolling in and I felt really, really bad about it because I went into this mindset of thinking, did I do more harm than good? Mm. Did I create a division in the black design community. And even within the industry, it's pretty small. And so the last thing that I want to do is create a divide in a community that is already kind of small compared to everything else in the industry itself. And I think the thing that really was a little bit frustrating for me is I did this part of this out of the intention of the fact that I wanted to connect a lot of black designers to the black design community because it's out there. But some of us, some of us young black designers are on these little islands where Mm -hmm. we don't know what's out there. Right. And I really have this passion to know what's out there. And I really have this passion to be connected to people that look like me because I feel like it's really important to see that to help me continue on in my career, in my opinion. And so I felt really bad because I thought I just ruined something. And it was amazing because a lot of the black designers were just like, you know what? You did great. You said what you needed to say. Maybe you could have done this that way. And maybe you could have said a few things. And that was great to hear them say that. And some people were just like, you know, we are, we are here for you with whatever you need. Don't worry about the criticism, continue on. And then I think with, as the, as time kind of moves forward, 
I kept looking at the criticism, but my perspective shifted in the sense that the, the criticism wasn't really negative. It was more that they were just asking a question and mm -hmm. that sometimes social media makes things look negative. Um, <laughs> Does it? That, that's, that's the thing I had to realize in separate was some of these social media has a tendency to make questions look really, 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 really negative. And so I reached out to some of these people that were giving the criticism. And I was like, Hey, I, I really just want to sit down and hear what you mean by what you said. And it was great because I met some of these people and now I'm connected with them and they are giving me the most amazing guidance. And, you know, they clarified that it was just a question that was all that they were asking. And even after the conversation, I would like look back on the criticism and just think to myself, yeah, it actually was just a question. It wasn't really harsh criticism. It was just that there was some confusion and that they just wanted to know why certain things happened or why certain people weren't included in any of this. It took me a while to get really comfortable with what happened and just kind of move on from that. And I'm still doing that too, because I'm trying to learn how to step in the right way and like walk instead of like run super fast. Uh-huh. It's all a learning process, but I'm definitely keeping that criticism in mind. And I will be honest in the sense that do I like how some of the criticism was delivered? No. But do I respect it? I respect it completely. Gotcha. Yeah. I, a lot of the criticism that I saw, I mean, some of it was during the events. I did watch the events and like I saw people that were saying things like in the Slack room. There were people that were saying things on Twitter. There were people that were saying things like the YouTube chat, just to kind of mm -hmm. see like how it's all going and everything. And mm -hmm. I know just based off of the fact that you had to put this together so quickly, I mean, I think, you know, logistically, like the event went off great mm -hmm. without a hitch, like from transition to different things, like it went off, you know, kind of just fine. And I don't know if this was part of the criticism that you received, but I know for me, as I was watching it, I was like, this feels like, and you sort of said this earlier, like it's less about, black and more mm -hmm. about like this is more for allies like it's mm -hmm. not really for black designers because i think that there might have been this conflation of and this is something that i feel like also mostly took place in june because i haven't heard it mm -hmm. much this month but this conflation of black with bipoc or mm -hmm. bipoc i don't know if i'm saying if i have to spell out each letter in the acronym but it almost felt like it was this conflation of that where the question is, where are the black designers, not where mm -hmm. are the BIPOC designers mm -hmm. and the allies that will help them? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, it was crazy, too, because even going through this process, it was like a battle of like, OK, it, the title is where are the black designers. And I remember I would put in BIPOC, but I would be like, no, I think the concentration should be on black designers. And someone made it very clear to me and gave me amazing feedback that was saying, you need to be aware that if you have a title and there are words in this title that cater to an audience, you should probably focus, make your focus and your opportunities for the audience that is in your title. So the fact that there are the words black designer in them, that means that I need to focus on them because that's what, being highlighted and so I understand that there was this confusion behind it because again I think it goes to your point that 
BIPOC was being thrown around and then also kind of being associated with black as well. Mm-hmm. So it was really confusing, which is why we're trying to make it very clear now, even within the Slack community, that this is for black designers because it is and it should be treated exactly as such. Speaking of the the Slack community, so you had the Slack sort of team that was going on in tandem with the event. And I think at its peak, I may have seen close to 4,000 people mm-hmm. in there. Have you been back in the Slack group since the event has ended? Oh, yeah. Like, so there's a really nice community in there because originally the Slack was used for the chat, but then so many people stayed. Yeah. And so many people started exchanging resources and contacts. And so mm-hmm. this opportunity came up that we could actually create this community in Slack because it's a great tool to kind of branch out into a lot of things. It can be dangerous, but can also be amazing, right? Yeah. So the Slack, people started breaking out into different groups and almost like different clubs. So I go in there regularly and we actually have a team of volunteers that help make the space super safe. And we're starting to structure it and really build a foundation to where People are going in the Slack community and posting jobs, but we just shut down the job channels in the Slack community. We told people to streamline that to a survey that we are going to link to the Black Caucus channel because we have a channel mainly, and actually not even mainly, only for Black designers and Black creatives. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually starting to work at structuring this because so many people are in there and they don't want to leave and they are really happy that they can connect with this many people in one place. And our Black Caucus channel is so beautiful. It's so amazing. And it feels like this one huge family and everyone's talking to each other and everyone's having a conversation and everyone's putting out ideas on what they can do to help out each other. They're giving us ideas and us suggestions on how we should structure this and everything. So there's a live community in the Where the Black designer slack channel right now and it is it is popping for sure it's well and alive that's good to hear that you put some structure kind of around that because i i think i might have popped in maybe a couple of times Mm -hmm. after the like the week after the event Mm -hmm. and was just kind of seeing how things were sort of shaking out because i just (laughs) this feels like one of these like past experience things so revision path used to have a slack a couple of years ago and it never got super large. I'd say maybe at our, our peak, we might have gotten about, I don't know, maybe like 350, 400 people mm-hmm. or something. So it never was, was too big, but we did end up having those like bad agents that would come in there that were particularly mm-hmm. there just to kind of like stir up some mess. Or you had people there that were just trying to mine data from people that, you know, were in the group, like, everyone send me your LinkedIn account so I can add you. And then when you add them, they're actually spamming you with information about their startup that they want Mm -hmm. you to be a part of or something like, you know, like, all those sorts of things. But I'm glad that Mm -hmm. you're putting this kind of like, organization behind it. So it sort of hopefully gets rid of and cancels out a lot of that kind of stuff. I think at this point, like Slack has to know that their tool is no longer just for like working teams. Like it's for right. all kinds of all kinds of things. And I know that they've been adding different features and stuff to try to make it more of a like chat room message board sort of hybrid. But I don't know. Eventually they're gonna have to realize they need to add some more like just moderating structure and things like that. Cause you can have 
moderators and roles, but it's still not like, like, for example, one Slack member can't block another Slack member right? because you're all in the same team together. Mm -hmm. So the only way to sort of handle it is to like completely remove someone altogether. Right. Which, you or know, verbally it, say something. Yeah. Or verbally say something. But even then, like, that's a bit of a, a draconian measure to take when, you know, if the user could just block this person that is interacting right. with them, that could be right. great. But that's a, a Slack thing. That's not anything that's endemic of, you know, that particular where the Black Designer Slack community. That's just the tool itself. Yeah. Um, and I think it's been great, too, because so many people are passionate about this community that, I mean, to be honest, the Slack community kind of runs itself, too, especially with the Black Caucus channel. I think I made sure to make it clear that this is a community and that we should treat it as such that there's no one trying to be there's no one trying to lead this in a sense where it's like people are being told what to do. So it's really kind of beautifully autonomous because people are working to actually keep it safe, whether they are an official volunteer or not. Mm -hmm. And they are either messaging me or the team about things or seeing that there's someone being really suspicious or trying to stir up some trouble. They even report it in their own channel and say, hey, this is not the place for this. Either you get out or we will all kick you out. So it's so crazy and amazing to see how people are just so passionate about this community that they are willing to dedicate their time and energy to keep it as such. Because I think we're just all excited that we can just be connected to each other um and not be on these like little islands like i said so it's pretty great yeah and i think you know it, it would help i mean i don't know how often you're kind of popping in there and you know saying hello or whatever but i think that also helps so people know that like it's something that you're a part of as well like yes it's for the community but also like i'm here i'm your benevolent overlord well maybe not like that but <laughs> Like, you know, pop yeah. in, say hello, like yeah. get to know people, you know, similar to what, you know, Cheryl said, you've ha you have this, this big microphone and now you have this large group of people with the Slack community that that's power. Yeah. I don't, have you thought about it that way? I've thought about it in a way where like, I feel powerful, but not in the sense where it's like myself in the uh -huh. sense where there's so many of us and there's kind of this attention on us where we can almost kind of like demand anything right now and call out so many people together and it will get so much attention. But that's, that's how I feel powerful in the sense that there's so many people that are contributing. Like this community is making me feel powerful as a black designer, not as the person that put this together, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that it's been, you know, a month out from the event, you've had some time mm -hmm. to kind of process not just the logistics leading up to it, but even things that have happened afterwards. Like, where are you at now with everything? Like, I know you mentioned there were some next steps that you're planning on taking. You mentioned at the end of the event. Yeah. So we are actually trying to become a nonprofit because so many companies and people are so passionate about donating and we kind of want to continue on this momentum and really push the agenda of diversity and and just representation forward so we have newsletters that are coming out we have some amazing things that are actually coming having to do with a lot of black designers putting out their work i'm not going to spoil it but it's it's going to be pretty great 
we are kind of planning a fall series of just talks that are very useful to black designers and potentially allies. But right now our main priority are black designers. So, so just bouncing around, like having conversations about, you know, simple things like how to negotiate your salary, because I feel like, you know, we're not taught things like that in school. And I think this is in like an opportunity to talk about things that can really empower young black designers to Mm -hmm. understand that they bring something amazing to the table. So we're kind of centering that, that empowerment in our fall series. And a lot of companies want to collaborate, but again, it's that whole walking before running. So we're really trying to set up a good foundational structure while also amplifying and highlighting other amazing initiatives. So on Instagram, we're always looking to highlight amazing people. We are even trying to use a little money we have to donate to our community by hiring black creatives to do some work for our website. Because again, this is communal. We're doing the whole companies can submit a job and it's a database just specifically for black designers. So there's so much that, that we, that we want to do, but we're taking it step by step and just kind of using just the resources that we have now. So that's basically hosting talks. It's, that's not going to be as big as the conference and just kind of putting out challenges and everything that the community can get involved in. I'm curious to know, you know, this is really kind of blown up for you very quickly in a very Mm -hmm. short amount of time. Has this in any sort of way affected your work with HP? Yes, a little bit, because after the conference, I would probably say my second line manager was saying, okay, how can we do better? So that's what's changed in the sense, but it's not like a huge change where I'm like some type of celebrity or something, especially because I don't really like that kind of attention. And I just want to be taken seriously as a designer and just build up a solid reputation like I've been trying to do since I graduated. Uh-huh. So it's good that they're not giving me special treatment because I don't want it. But outside of HP, nothing honestly has really changed. And I rather just keep it that way in a sense. I definitely do want to take advantage of the wave of opportunities, uh-huh. but I don't want special treatment in a way where I'm not working hard for something because I, I like working hard. And I think that when I'm working hard, I'm learning a lot of things. And I don't want to stop learning. If that all makes sense. That makes sense. I get what you're saying. I'll just yeah. give you one tiny piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Don't sign anything with your current employer. As it relates to this, you've managed to build this up in a very short amount of time. And I'm just telling you from past experience, some employers will see that and they want to maybe hitch onto the gravy train. Just don't sign anything. Yeah. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Just pass that along. (laughs) So what is it now that is, is keeping you motivated and inspired these days? I mean, between work and even in the midst of this pandemic, but you've got this really positive thing happening with, with what happened with the event. Like what's keeping you going these days? Honestly, I think what's keeping me going is the work that I'm seeing in terms of just personal work and and design and 
I think looking at all of these amazing black designers and their style, some of these people's styles just crazy and incredible. And it's so different from the whole clean and minimal and Swiss grit. And it's so inspiring and it's giving me a new wave of creativity to just go wild and let out my funkiness and my love for things that are funky and groovy in terms of design. So it's honestly just Black designers and other designers and creatives of color that are really just inspiring me because they are truly being their authentic selves in their work. Mm -hmm. And when they put it out there, it's so incredible. And I want to get to that point because I think that I used to work in a sense where I wanted to impress people and really prove something to people. But now I'm starting to realize I don't have anything to prove. And I think that when I'm more myself, people enjoy that more. And it also makes more of a statement in the world, especially to people that kind of don't want to see us succeed. So that's what's been keeping me inspired these days. How are you using your skills to help create a more equitable future? I think it's not even my design skills that are contributing to a more equitable future. I think it's just empathy and sympathy because at the end of the day, I know and plenty of other black people know what it's like to be disrespected. And I think I care about others so much that I don't want anyone to feel that way, which is why I, push this conference so hard because I think for me, I don't really care about getting hurt. I think it's like seeing other people getting hurt that really just wrecks me a lot. So I think it's my empathy and sympathy that's helping me contribute to those things by being really open, um, communicating with people, having conversations all the time, it's kind of been a full-time job because, or it's kind of been two full-time jobs because I have my regular full-time job, but then I'm also always scheduling meetings and making sure that I talk with everyone that Mm -hmm. messages me. I really try to talk with everybody and answer everybody's questions and really make them feel like I'm paying attention to them because it's true. I want to pay attention to them because they are really important and I don't want to make them feel negative in any way or on any level. So I think it's empathy and then me communicating. That's helping me contribute all of this and what I'm contributing. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work would you like to be doing? I think in the next five years, oh, that's such a loaded question because to be honest, I don't even know what I'm going to eat for lunch and I can't even think that I think I would love to be at a very high leadership level and leading young black designers like myself or even younger than that, because I do love children and I do love education, especially because I feel like that is kind of key to solving a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. So I think in five years, I would love to be in some type of leadership or mentor or teaching role. That's kind of what I, the only thing I can envision right now. 
And I try to kind of take things step by step with the vision of looking at things in the future, but not too far. But yeah, I think that's all, all I can say for now. All right. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, Mitzi, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah, so you can head over to my website, mitsioku.com, and you can also go on my Instagram at OK underscore Mits. And I think that would just lead you to mostly everything else in the work that I do. All right. Sounds good. Well, Mitzi Oku, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll be completely honest here. When I mm-hmm. reached out to you, so many people were like, why are you talking to her? a lot of people were like why are you talking to her she stole your presentation why are you talking to her and i said look i want to get a sense of like where she's coming from because this has all transpired so quickly with Mm -hmm. this event and you putting all this together and everything happening i'm like i want to give her a chance to really kind of just talk about who she is i was like i don't really know anything about her I don't know where her story is. I don't know like really where all this came from. And so I want to have her on the show to be able to talk about that and talk about the event in a space that is free from the momentum of the event, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we would have talked during the time this was going on, I feel like that could have been a different conversation, but I was like, look, let's, let's have her have some time away from this. We'll talk. We'll get a sense of like what she's about and where she's coming from. And so I feel like it's yielded, not just a great conversation, but also just a great snapshot into who you are and what your drive and your work ethic is and what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And so Mm -hmm. I said before, when I was on Twitter, I was like, I support the event. I see what they're trying to do in terms of the mission. I Mm -hmm. see where you're coming from with this now. I support Mm -hmm. where you're going and I'm excited to see what comes next out of this. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and the time to come on here. I really appreciate our conversation that we had. It was so fun. Big, big thanks to Mitzi Oku. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Mitzi and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us today at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.